great spots that we have, I guess, I would pick working restrooms uh, most days of the week. We're going to uh, dive together back into uh, Genesis, chapter, uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis that we've been going through. If you're new to our church, we're glad to have you here this morning. We were, we've been in Genesis for a long time last year, and we are continuing in Genesis this year. This morning we're going to be picking up our series in Genesis in chapter 16. If you uh, don't have a Bible, would you like to follow along with us? There are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. You can feel free to grab one of those, and if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, that's okay. We have people each week with us who have no familiarity with Christianity, no familiarity with the Bible. Uh, we're glad you're here. We want you to be here. Uh, the church is not just a place for senior saints, uh, but a place for people who are exploring what this whole thing is about. We've got good news for you today. It's easy to find Genesis because it's the first book of the Bible. So if you want to find Genesis, you just start at the beginning, and you start rolling, and you'll find Genesis 16 pretty quickly. I want to start this morning, though, by asking you uh, somewhat of a serious question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you felt invisible? I ask that question, and you may be responding in your heart at this moment, yeah, right now. I feel invisible to the people around me. Maybe you're the kind of person who's been married for 10 or 20 or 30 years, and as the years following your marriage have gone on, you still live in the same house, eat the same food, go the same places that you feel increasingly invisible to your husband, or you feel increasingly invisible to your wife. It's like, it's like you're there, but you're not there. Or maybe you, this is your experience right now, or has been your experience in your, your past. You, you had a dad who was around. He wasn't, he wasn't a deadbeat dad. He was there, but he wasn't there. He was in the house, but you could walk through the house, and it was like you were invisible to him. Or perhaps you walk into class every day. You walk down hallways filled with hundreds of students, and you feel invisible. You're there. Nobody sees you. Many of you know, at least at right now, or have felt sometime in your life, what it feels like to be invisible. And sometimes, to make things matter worse, we feel not just invisible to the people around us, that we desperately want to, to take notice of us for just a moment, just to notice that we're here. We feel invisible to God. And I wish that there was something I could do for just a moment to get God to, to know that He sees me. To just notice me for a minute. To just notice that I'm down here dealing with, with this thing. And I think one of the things that makes feeling invisible to God most difficult for us is, is that He's the one who's supposed to be able to see everything. He's the omniscient, all-knowing one. He is supposed to 
what God had promised to her. Sarah had spent her entire life desperate for one thing. She is, the Bible has told us already, leading up to this point, a woman who seems to have it all. She's a, a wealthy woman. She can have whatever it is she wants. She's a gorgeous woman. She's the kind of woman who, woman who turns heads wherever she goes. But the one thing that she desperately wants the most is the one thing that she doesn't have. Yet God has promised her a son at the age of 65 years old. And so you can imagine how she felt being promised this thing that she desperately wants. She now has a, a promise from God that she will actually have a son, that she will have an heir, and then she waits 10 years, a decade. And as each calendar year passes, she is now moved from the age of 65 to the age of 75, and she feels like she is no closer to receiving God's promise than she had been a decade earlier. And by the time she's turned 75, and she believes she has been waiting patiently God's promise to come true for a decade now, she finally decides that it is time, high time, to take matters into her own hands. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 16. If you're there with me in Genesis chapter 16, look at verse 1. The word of God says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had born no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Went into Hagar and she conceived. We'll stop our reading right there. Now, some of you are familiar with this story. For those of you who aren't, welcome to the Bible. It's got some crazy stuff in it. We're only just getting started. As we're reading along with this, this obviously has that idea written all over it. You can, you can see the train coming down. And this idea sounds absolutely preposterous to us, but I want you to understand that this idea would not have sounded preposterous to them at the time. I remember when I was when I was younger reading the Bible, and I was like, man, what a what a crazy idea that they just came up with out of thin air. This actually isn't a crazy idea that they came up with out of thin air. This is something that was a very common practice in the time. Now, that's to say nothing about the morality of the wisdom of the practice, but it was a common practice. In fact, there are ancient law codes from other civilizations and cultures in this time period that govern the laws regarding this practice. So Sarah was not doing something that was particularly unusual. She's wanting to have a child through a surrogate. And when you live in a day where there are no fertility clinics, there are no ways of figuring out what the problem is, there are no medical solutions to fixing the problem, when there are no 
utilize infertility clinics, then this is the only other way to have a child through a surrogate. And so she brings this idea up to Abram, and he says, sounds fine to me. Doesn't make it the right decision, but it's not an unusual decision in that time period. But of course, as we've seen already in the book of Genesis, and you may know from your own experiences, when we try to bring about God's will, our way, it always produces disastrous results. And Sarai has determined that she is going to bring about God's will her way. Now, let's pick up our reading the second half of verse 4 where we left off. So it says, when she saw that she had conceived, when Sarah saw that Hagar got pregnant, she looked with contempt. I don't reverse that. <laughs> I got reverse name. She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your grace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and but Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now the, the text here doesn't flesh this out. It doesn't give us the details of what exactly is producing the, the friction here, the, the, the exact particulars of the situation. But you can imagine the difficulty that is now introduced and now either person would be handling it well. I mean, you've got a person like Hagar who has been a maidservant to her all the way up to this point, and she has now all of a sudden had her social status raised very quickly. She has now been taken as a wife of Abram, and not only has she been taken as an additional wife of Abram, but she is now carrying the sole heir. The thing everybody wants, she's giving. Now that might change the way you walk around a little bit. Sarah, Sarah asks her for help with something, and she might say, oh, love to carry the air. I don't know exactly what happened, but you can, you can see why that would be a point of friction. And of course, Sarah gets angry, I think I'm, I'm always seeing and using things in the text. It was her idea, but she blames Abram. <laughs> Look at what you did, Abram. And he at least has the wisdom to not say, well, it was your idea. Which is maybe something that we can learn from the text. That's not the point of the text, but a lesson to be learned nonetheless. And the rest of this isn't, isn't abundantly clear to us, but the, the rest of this is basically something of a legal proceeding. Because, because remember, I told you there are legal codes in other civilizations here, and these legal codes made it possible for you to have father and heir through a surrogate and, and set things up legally so that this child who is born to you through the surrogate becomes the heir of all that you have. Remember, Abram is a, a, a wealthy, he's a very wealthy man and an influential uh, figure in, in the, the land area that he's in. So something has, been, has now been done to officially make Hagar a wife with all the rights and privileges that go along with that. Her son
son of the heir with all the righteous privileges to go along with that. Sarah is basically requesting that there be a reversal of those legal proceedings. That this relationship with Hagar be annulled in some sense, and that this child is going to be born to make sure that this child is not the legal heir to everything that, that Abram and Sarah have done. That's, that's what's going on here in our text. And of course, Abram agrees because he says, have a life, have a life, right? Whatever it is you want. Okay, you're out, uh, Hagar. And this child is, 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 is not going to be the heir. The legal proceedings are reversed. And Sarai has a revenge. Uh, she deals harshly with Hagar, the text tells us. So harshly, in fact, that Hagar runs away. Now, Hagar only has a, a bit part in this drama, right? When you think about the, the figure of Hagar, in the, in the biblical story, she hasn't been mentioned up to this point. So, Hagar hasn't been on our radar at all. She, there's, God is doing something through Abram and Sarai and their families. He's promised them that through them, they're going to have a child. That child is going to create a family. That family is going to create a great nation. That nation is going to produce an heir who would ultimately find to be the Messiah through whom all the nations of the, of the world are going to be blessed. So Abram and Sarai are major characters in this overarching plot line that shapes the entire narrative arc, not only of scripture, but of human history. So if you were going to read, you were going to see the credits at the end of this movie, the person who plays Hagar gets like a line, a mention. You know how the credits are going by super fast, and you can't read it, it's like the person that's just featuring so-and-so, and then all these people have poured blood, sweat, and tears into it, and write their pictures, and they, they go by so fast you can see. That's Hagar's role. Hagar's got a, a bit part. She is a female Egyptian servant. So in terms of cultural capital, she's got none. And that makes what happens next surprising to us. It's just surprising. Look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, remember she ran away, and appears, appears to chart her, her pathway. She's running back to Egypt. You know, she's She's become a servant to this family. She's left Egypt for some kind of reason. I mean, let your, let your sanctified imagination go wild. Why would a person leave your own country and attach themselves to a family? She's got stuff that's happened. Okay, but now she's returning to Egypt, and it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Said, I am fleeced from my mistress, Sarah. <coughs> the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. Not very good so far. In verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant 
mean kid, but I know. Deal. So the son she's going to give birth to must be named Ishmael. And your Bible probably has some kind of footnote in there that tells you what Ishmael means. And if you don't know the Bible with that footnote, Ishmael means God hears. So this insignificant person in the grand scheme of things names her son God hears because the Lord listens to her affliction. Hagar has been used. She has been treated she has been rejected, and none of it escaped the Lord's notice. So Hagar responds with incredulity the way many of us would respond. In verse 13 of Genesis chapter 16, it tells us this. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of Satan. For she said, surely here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was named Beer Lahirah, which lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar is incredulous as she realizes that the Lord has chased her down in the wilderness. And she exclaims, you are a God of seeing. You need to name the place, the well Beer Lahirah means the well of the Lord uh, of the Lord who sees, the God of seeing. It's remarkable. Let me point out an interesting thread that runs through this story. It's a thread that you may have picked up on. It's a thread that you may, may have noticed. It's a thread of seeing and hearing. Let me run this. Let me run this. This thread back for you so that you can see it. You can even mark this in your Bible if you'd like to. In verse 2, Abram listens to the voice of Sarah. And he agrees to produce an heir through Hagar. In verse 4, Hagar looks with contempt at Sarah. In verse 5, Sarah reports to Abram way Hagar looks at her. In verse 11, Hagar is to name her child God hears because the Lord truly has listened to her affliction. In verse 13, she declares that God truly is a God of seeing and says, truly, I have seen the one who looks after me. And then, verse 16, she names the place, the well of the living one, because what? Sees me. You can't miss it, can you? There is a thread of seeing and hearing that's woven all the way through this story. So as I said at the beginning, we have two women here in this story and neither woman feels seen. Sarai seems to think that God has forgotten. She 
has left her family, she has left her home, she has left everything familiar to her at the age of 65, and she is very well set in her ways, but she has agreed to do it. She has followed her husband Abram to a place that they didn't even know where they were going. And when they arrived there, she has waited no less than a decade to receive the promise that had been given to her that she will be the mother of a multitude. She's a 75-year-old woman married to an 85-year-old man, and nothing's happened. Still no child. And so she responds to the feeling of not being seen like many of us do by acting out. You don't see me? You will. She's not going to take this lying down. She's received a promise from God, and it is going to happen one way or the other. She is going to be seen. Then we've got Hagar. And Hagar responds in the opposite way. And that opposite way that she responds is probably largely driven by her circumstances. As I said before, Hagar is the person with the least social clout in the story. She's the person without power. She doesn't have an advocate to stand up for her. There's no one to plead her cause. There's no one to go to to say, I've been treated unfairly. So she runs. She hides. She resigns herself she languishes at the well on the way back home to who knows what, now pregnant with a child, she resigns herself to the fact that this is what it's going to be. Nothing. Yet, the story goes implicitly and explicitly tells us that both of these women are very God sees Sarah. God has not forgotten about her. He has not forgotten the promises that he made to her. She is going to be given everything God promised, but she is going to receive it God's way. In God's time. She doesn't have to act out. She doesn't have to take matters into her own hands. Here's the truth 
us assume because of the way our lives have played out, the way our relationships have played out, the hand that we've been dealt, however it is that you want to describe it, the difficulty of our circumstances, so often we assume this wouldn't be happening. God did. But I must be invisible to him. He's got so many things that he's concerned with. God's got people that are important to him, and then God's got his VIPs. He's got his people that are very important to him. And they're the part of the, they're the part of the real plan. They're the big people that we that we see and have some sort of have some sort of platform. While the rest of us feel like God sometimes has forgotten us. Have you ever felt like you were suffering? And it just seemed like God didn't even notice? And you just wanted for a moment to maybe feel like his days landed on you. But I see that. When we feel invisible to God, we do the same sorts of things that Hagar said. I said this to the ladies at uh, the ladies' conference a week or so ago. Our hearts, when we don't feel seen, can go either to desperation or despair. When my heart goes to desperation, I try to get God's attention by acting out. I try to get God's promise my will. I take the ball by the horns. I assume, I guess this is the way it is, but I am strong enough to overcome this, and I'm going to make my own pathway through life, and I'm going to feel my own hurts, and I'm going to meet my own needs. How many of us have plowed ahead of your lives saying, God, if you don't have me, I do. That's where I go. I got it, but you don't. It doesn't work. Or rather than going from desperation, you go to despair. And that's where we get into hope. There's no hope left. Everything's gray. Yes, this is what it is. There's nothing that can change it. And when we get into despair like that, it develops a root of bitterness in our hearts. Why did God deal them back in and meet this one? Resentment of the people that have the things that we want and have received. So we move into a, a place of despair. We run, we hide. We don't have to go to that place of desperation or despair. We believe what the scriptures both tell us and show us through the stories of God's people that even though at times we feel invisible, even though at times we may feel invisible to God, you serve God who sees you. zoom out from the story and just share with you a couple of experiences of ours that it would be helpful for you to know from the, the, broader, the broader picture of scripture what, what exactly it is that God sees. Experiences or categories that God sees. Number one, just two of them I want to share with you. Number one, God sees our good. The good that you do God sees that. 
He goes through life thinking, God, any, any good thing we give to God, God, really, that's it. That's the best you can do. When you think about the damage that does to a person's Christian walk, when you think that no matter how hard you try, or no matter what you do, you bring it to God,
Psalm 56, David is grieving before the Lord. He says this, Psalm 56 and verse 8, You have kept count of my tossings, tossing and turning. Put my tears in the bottom. Are they not in your book? What are the things that brought David comfort and grief was that his grief didn't go unnoticed. There is, there is perhaps no human experience more isolating. There is perhaps no human experience of being invisible than to shed tears We were made for relationship. We were made for our community. We were made to grieve together. One of the things that we most desperately want, one of the things that we most desperately need in our grief is for someone to come to us and say, I see. That person doesn't even have to fix it. They just have to be there. Yet, how many tears have you shed that no other person saw? And then, how does it impact you to read that God only saw every single grief unmixed, every bit? So when the Bible says in Revelation, like we talked about last year, no more tears, that's going to go backwards. Because every cut you felt, every loss you grieved, I don't know how it works, but every single one of them, you're going to feel like that was seen. Jesus, you know that there is something about you that God doesn't see. And you know what the thing is that God doesn't see? I can hear some of you whispering. The one thing about you that God doesn't see Single thing. Because every piece of good you've done takes care of the 
know this. Every tear that you have cried has been caught. Every lament that you have made before him has heard. He doesn't miss a single one. It'd be terrifying if he does it for sin. If you know who you are, There are no doubt people here this very morning who have walked into our church, whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time, feeling as if they are invisible. People who feel invisible to you. All of us have perhaps cried out verbally or inside in rage. Do you not see what I'm going through? And Lord, from this powerful story of these two women this morning, I pray that you would help us to have it blazoned into our hearts that we serve God who sees. And Lord, I thank you that you take note of everything in our lives except the one thing you choose to pass over and bury in the furthest depths of the sea. Lord, if there is someone here this morning who has never repented of their sins and believed the good news, and I pray by the power of let your spirit, you would bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. That you 
would open up their eyes and their heart, that you would give them the gift of faith, that they would see Jesus in his beauty, his glory, and believe. You forgive We thank you for your goodness to us. We ask this in